0: It's good to be back. I, um, we had a good time. Um, on vacation, I took your advice. I didn't, didn't do hardly any work. And uh, I uh, just had a great time in Michigan. And uh, I have pretty much completely decided that uh, I'm going to be voting for Big Ten football this fall season. I, I completely believe that Big Ten Conference is better than the SEC football. What? What? There's problems with that in this room. Will stands up, old Miss Boy. Uh, I knew I, I had to say that because I was. I knew I'd get Will on his feet. So, uh, uh, all of you, no, it was. It's. It was good. It was a good. It was a good. Good time. And uh, I'm very excited to be here and uh, and be with you this week. Uh, uh, very very uh, difficult study time for me in this in this scripture. And, um, it's a, it's, it's just been a very, just unbelievable, crazy week trying to, uh, put together this sermon. Um, and, uh, i i I told uh, Randy this morning i just it, it just reminds me again of how this is so much not about what I say or do it 's about what the spirit does uh, with any of these words uh, you know for you, but I guess the main thing I would love for you to hear this morning would be um, that I really believe that this all the things i 'm going to say to you probably applies to me more than any any of you in the sense that i uh, I really need what i what 's here today uh, I really it's hard to talk about what I'm going to talk about with you today um, And I don't think it's a very popular topic to talk about what we're going to talk about today But I think it's really really important for us I know it's it's really been good for me this week even though it's been very hard So turn with me to Acts chapter 14 if you will this morning if you don't have a Bible Maybe you can uh, sit next to somebody or grab one maybe three of you can share something like that And uh we are uh, have been walking through the book of Acts. I know Dave spent the last couple of weeks with you talking about the book of Acts, and and uh, uh, there are some unbelievable things going. Remember, remember what's going on here is that is that the you know the church you know started in Jerusalem, and now the Lord is beginning to send out His messengers into all parts of the world. Matthew 28. Go make disciples. Right of all nations, and now the beginning movement is beginning to happen. The tsunami is beginning to take place. God's done an unbelievable work in changing a man by the name of Saul. He changes his name to Paul, and you want to talk about a complete, that's very indicative of the turnaround that's taken place in Paul's life is the name change that took place. Literally got hit by God, just wrecked by God on the road, on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. Everything changes. He, he, He was a persecutor of the law, and now he becomes literally, literally just a, one of the cornerstones of the gospel of the New Testament. And so here we're picking up on Paul's, one of, uh, the, the first of Paul's three missionary journeys that he takes. Every one of them that he did take, he ran into great opposition amidst great, great blessing with the Lord. But let's start reading at, verse, at chapter 14 at verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles Gentiles believed, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Hmm. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there and speaking boldly for the Lord. And This is what I want to talk to you about today. Speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the Lord confirmed. Look what it says. The message of his grace The Lord confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. And the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derv and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Let's stop there. And let's go back up there and look at this, this piece in, uh, in verse 3 again. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace. And it is that, isn't it? This is a popular topic for us. This is something that we talk about a lot here. This is something that you and I uh, talk about a lot when we spend time together. We talk a lot about God's grace and, uh, it's something that we should always be talking about. It's a good thing to be talking about God's grace. Some of you are here, uh, and, 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 maybe in the last couple of months, you're, you're beginning to just understand what this message of grace is really all about. Maybe you were raised in kind of a different, a different environment, a different understanding of, of, uh, some theological, real cornerstone theological principles. I don't know. But as I thought about this message of grace today, I want to share something with you that I think is really important. And it really is, is very important for us to hear, and it's this. Ultimately, our view of grace is ultimately rooted, rooted in our understanding of sin. Let me say that again. Ultimately, our view of grace is rooted in our understanding of sin. So what a terrible job I have to do today with you. I have to talk about sin. I'm not going to be popular today, I'm sure of it. It's a difficult thing to talk about, but it's really true. It was in the 11th century that the religious scholar Anselm did a masterful treatment of the work of Christ. And he warned those who thought God would overlook their shortcomings if they had just tried their best. He warned them with this: "You have not yet considered how great your sin is." When was the last time we thought about that? How bad is it? When I was 19 years old, I, for those of you that don't know this, I was a police cadet. <laughs> I wore a little blue shirt and I had a badge. I wore a black belt and dark blue shirt or dark blue pants real shiny shoes I shined them on Saturdays because I wanted to look official and military and I got to learn all the little ways of what police do and I worked in the dispatch room what do you think about that? hmm? worked in the dispatch room did the little press a little button and respond to such and such call you know you don't go on there and say 10 for good buddy you know and stuff like that you, you know it's kind of official police stuff you know well, they, part of this training was you had to go out in the police cars. And I thought, man, this is cool, man. Every guy wants to do this. This is just it's awesome. Let's go chase robbers. you This know? so is like the second night we were on there. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm going with these two guys. And we get this call that says, they respond to the scene of an accident. And uh, so we take off in this car. We're going really fast. Probably over 100 miles an hour to get there. I'm going. What's the hurry, guys? You know, because I'm I'm kind of going. Wow, this I'm kind of like in it now. This isn't. I'm not watching it on a show. So, we get there, and as we when, when we arrive on the scene, I look over and they park about uh, maybe 100, 100 plus 100 feet away from this accident, and the car's down in the ditch like this, and there's flames coming out, and you could just see the back of the car. It would, like remind you of some Stephen King movie you know they get out of the car and run to this thing and I get out of the car and go really slow because I can't believe that this is happening in my life right at this point like it's too scary for me and so as they get up to the car I say something that you've all said in your life and it's this how bad is it right I didn't want to go see it but I wanted to have them report to me how bad it was. It was bad that day. Those two people ended up; they were had they lost their lives in that accident. When you go and you look and you really look, I'm, I'm, you're not like me. But you go like those two police officers and you look over the edge into the abyss of the scriptures. It's bad. It's really bad. Especially for people who don't know Christ. And there's still a bad part of it that's still bad for us to do know Christ. It's bad. Because when you look over the edge and you see into the abyss of scriptures, you see that we, because of Adam's first sin, are literally dead people. We cannot even respond to God, unless He shows in some way His grace and mercy to reach down and pull us out of the wreck. Some people don't like to hear that. It's hard. And what we're dealing with here is as we talk about this idea of sin, when we talk about that, Paul here is dealing with this group of people called the Pharisees who subscribe to what we would call a very perfectionistic program of life. And that perfectionistic program was called obeying the law. That is kind of like this. It's kind of that little rat running on the wheel. I'm going to do all these good things. They called everybody, these Pharisees, and Paul was one of them, like I said, they called everybody to do good things. So many of you need to really lean in on this because this is a really important thing for you guys to hear today. They had this kind of program because of this. Their view of sin was an external view of sin. It didn't have anything to do with an internal condition of the person. Do you follow what I'm saying? In Adam, the Bible teaches that because of Adam's fall, his sin now is imputed to us. We're sinners. We don't just sin. When the guy goes to AA, he stands up in front of everybody and says, Hi, I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. He doesn't stand up and say, Hi, I'm John. I drink vodka tonics. Or I drink. He does drink, but he drinks because of what? His condition. And this is what the Bible talks a lot about. But the Pharisees have this kind of view that they're going to concentrate now on the externals. They saw sin as actions, external realities. Well, if sin is consisted in actions, then, follow this, then all one had to do in order to become holy was to stop this action or start this action. And many of you have heard of this before all the way through your lives. If I if it's just about me handling the external sins, I just then I start things and I I can stop things, right? If I have a problem or this man that sits to me next to me says I have a problem with lust, well that's because you're going to bad internet sites and you read you know you know you bad magazines, right? You're watching bad movies. Stop that. And he looks at me and he goes, anything else you got for me? Why does he say that? Because stop that doesn't, it'll help him for what, two days? Maybe a day? But stop that deals with his external sin. If your kids are rebellious, it's because they're listening to that terrible gangsta rap. Gangsta. You know, I'm. Here's the cure. Stop listening to that. Sound familiar to some of your past? Stop it. When I was a little boy, I was older than my brother, and I would like to beat up my brother a lot. And, uh, my brother would like to do things that got me upset like stealing stuff from my room. really pissed me off. And he, he he would go in and take my clothes and stuff. And we were in the laundry room one day, and all of a sudden he's running through the laundry room. I look at him. He's got a, one of my model cars that I'd spent like 50 years on doing a building. And I says, where are you going with that? And he goes, dude, we're taking this outside, and we're going to blow it up with an M80. You guys know what an M80 is? We're going to blow this up. This is going to be great. You know, that's what guys like to do. I said, you're not blowing that up. He goes, yes, I am. And he tears off. Rebellious, terribly rebellious. <laughs> yes, I yes, I am. And as he goes to say, yes, I am, I grab a brick. <laughs> and I pick this thing up. And this is the funniest moment because as I go to throw, I was going to throw that brick at my brother. <laughs> this is how crazy this is. My mom was so used to two boys fighting in the house, two boys fight, that she was so hardened that she literally came in and had, she caught me with my arm like this, and she goes, she keeps walking by, load of laundry, stop that, Joel, keeps walking, (laughs) stop that, stop throwing the brick at my brother's head to give him a skull fracture, you know, but guess what, later on that night, somebody dealt with my condition, it's called my daddy, And we talked a lot about me and my heart and how desperately wicked it was. (laughs) Sound like Scripture? He didn't have any problem with that. But the concept is there. And that's, there, there is this view here that I want you to make sure that you get because as we talk about sin, there's this tendency to have a very light view of sin and to talk about nothing more than Jesus, these sins that we're doing, and really ignore the reason why we're sinning in the first place. We probably see once a week on TV, you know, Danny just goes into the neighborhood drugstore and he shoots the, uh, you know, the store owner and he takes the money. Well, and the police arrest him, and then they go and interview Danny's mom. Two weeks later, she comes out, you know, she's standing there in her bathrobe or something. And she, the, the interviewer goes, well, tell us about Danny. She goes, well, Danny was hanging around with those boys. Those boys, you know, you need to know. Danny's a good boy. Deep down, Danny's a good boy. We believe that, don't we? that's not what the Bible teaches the Bible teaches deep down Danny you're not a good boy deep down Joel you're not a good boy deep down Joel you're hopeless you're destitute you're totally and utterly depraved you need a savior that's your only chance possible that's what the Bible teaches Samuel Tuke was an English reformer who lived in the 19th century, and he introduced a radical new approach to the treatment of mentally ill. At the time, asylum workers were chaining lunatics to the walls and beating them in the belief that punishment would defeat the evil forces within. Tuke taught the mentally ill afflicted how to behave at tea parties and at church he, would, he dressed them the way everyone else was dressed so that no one would recognize them as mentally ill. On the outside, they looked fine. The problem was, he never did anything to address their suffering, and no matter how they behaved, they remained mentally ill. We are all one of Tuke's patients, every one of us in this room. Robert Capon said this about the church and follow this because this has great meaning for some of you here. The church has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that she has made us like ill taught piano students. We play our songs, but we never really hear them, because our main concern is not to make music, but to avoid some flub that will get us that will not get us into trouble. And isn't that true? There are massive problems as it relates to this concept of our sins. This concept of uh, good behavior. And these problems that as we face sin, as we think about this message of grace, I want you to think about it. Because these problems and how we look at our sin versus our sinful condition really inhibit us from truly understanding the message of grace. Follow that now. That's where I'm going with this. These problems that really inhibit us from understanding this 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 full view and this understanding of grace are listed right here at my right. First of all, we have problem number one, and it's called this. It's called resentment. Many of us today are deeply resentful toward the church, our parents, and even God because we have blown up the balloon of good works and good behavior only to have the air leak out of the balloon and pop altogether. Isn't it true? And that's what the balloons do. They create an overworked moralism that is constantly in need of breath. And many of you that are sitting here today are out of breath because you've tried to be good little boys and girls and you've come to realize that it just doesn't work. Is there any power beyond my human body that will help me just live today to give me a hope today from the depraved condition of who I am? From when I lay to bed at night and I look up into my ceiling and I I think about the terrible things I thought about or the terrible things I've done or the terrible things that I want to do. It's not enough for me to create some kind of a program where I can say I'm going to be in an accountability group or I'm going to do this or I'm going to specialize on this or whatever the case may be. It's empty. It's like the balloons that we've all blown up. And many of us here in our Christian lives walk around with these balloons like the guy at the fair. We have all these balloons with good things that we've done hoping in some way for them to lift us up and have a, have a great this standing before God. It just doesn't work. And many of us have come to the end of it we are in the darkest corners of our life, and we have seen, we we think, good grief, how can this work if it's all about just good behavior? If it's all about managing my sin, I don't want it, and I don't want anything to have to do with you, Lord, because doggone it, I just can't do it. Here's the problem with that whole point. The problem with resentment, remember, is always this: it's if your focus is on you and not on the right thing. What's the right thing? It's the cross. But this is a, one of our problems that we have and as, as I talk to you about a view of sin. Is that many of us here today are resentful. And we're resentful, some of us for good reasons. Some of us for wrong. Number two. I want to talk to you today about something that really I think is very indicative of my life. And it's called a cavalier sanctification. Cavalier meaning Yep, I sin, no big deal. God forgives me. You ever talk to anybody like that? You, you can talk to me long enough, you'll find that out in my life. It's very cavalier. It's like, well, Lord, it's no big deal. I know you came. I know you lived. I know you died. I know you, yeah, and I know you, you'll forgive me. It's like sitting down with a guy and he says, well, you know, I, I slept with my girlfriend last night, and it's no big deal. God will forgive me. Is it really no big deal? Is it? Or if it could be your boyfriend or it could be your boyfriend's girlfriend or we could go on and on and on and on do, have we actually lost the concept of do we have any seriousness in our life over the damage and the consequences of sin it's not a popular topic trust me it's really abrasive do we have any thoughts of it does it affect you at all do you think about the damage that could possibly be created about moral decisions that you make in your life or about any other decisions that we've made in our lives. Do we think about it at all? Is it just no big deal? How serious sin really is. I begin to realize how serious sin really is when I begin to realize how bad my condition, my sinful condition really is. And it will help us greatly in all avenues of our sanctification when we begin to realize how depraved we really are. Now let me make sure you, you hear something today. If you're in Christ and you're a student of the living God, you now have been given a new power in your life over sin. Before that time, you had no power. That's one of the beauties of the gospel. However, the question remains, when you came to know God as you being a believer... Is sin completely eradicated from your life? Boy, would we love it to be. But the Bible teaches that it's not. In fact, Paul teaches that it's right there beside us in Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do. But the idea for us as we begin to understand this concept of sanctification is for us to really understand much greater, not it's about what bad things we do and good things we do, but how absolutely sinful these remnants in our bodies still can remain. In other words, it's probably not good for the young man to come to me and say, yeah, my girlfriend and I are going to get married. And... uh I've heard this plenty of times in this city, and uh, I, I, we it got late. We saw a movie together, and I decided to stay at her house that night. And I think, what? Why would you do that? See that that young man may not have a true understanding of his great propensity to sin. Now remember, the condition has been removed because of Christ, but he still wants to sin. He's not necessarily called a sinner anymore from the Scriptures. He's called a saint. He's called the child of the living God. He has a new power, but he obviously still deals with sin. So in our sanctification, one of the things we need to seriously look at is rather than have this kind of this cavalier attitude towards, well, I can kind of get close and not close to God, I need to go, wait a minute now. I need to really be careful with what's going on in my life. I need to really step back and think about this. Because I have a great propensity to make a lot of prideful decisions, a lot of selfish decisions, and a lot of sinful decisions. You follow? It's not popular, is it? I sure don't like talking about it. I sure would love to have a God that I can just say, well, and, and you know what? Here's what's great. Here, It's so difficult because... It, it is great when I can look I can look at my Lord and I can say, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. And God's right there. He is. If you're in Christ, He never leaves us. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins are already forgiven. Okay? But it, and it would be very easy to have this abusive kind of sanctification or this cavalier thing that says, well, God just forgives me. Guess what? God has so much more for us than that so much more the color of his sanctification is so much brighter than yours and mine our sanctification is black and white his is like hd technicolor it's so much more beautiful and we haven't and part of our lives is about trying to tune that color in you see and then the last thing that happens when we view Sin, our sins versus our condition is what I call a weak Christology, an anemic or a weak Christology. If it's just about good and bad actions in our lives, listen to this now. If it's just about good or bad things that I do in my life, let me ask you a question. Why do I need a Savior? Why do you need a Savior? Why? you just need a Savior so that when you die you can go to heaven that's what some of my roots sometimes talked about I need a Savior because I need a ticket to heaven but you're in that it really doesn't have any bearing on your life right now is that why I need a Savior let me ask you a second question why did God become man think about it why did God become man Let me tell you why because in Romans 3 it says that there is no one righteous and not even one and there is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God God had to descend upon this earth and into our hearts because you know what we would be too busy partying down here and never even know he's at the party he had to come and stop the music He had to come and stop the whole thing because the Bible says in your sinful condition you don't even look towards the Lord. Let me finish this by saying this. We don't just need a Jesus who can help us with our sins. We don't just need a Jesus who helps us be good and nice little Christian boys and girls. We don't just need a Jesus who gives us some successful principles to run our business. Good grief, throw me up. We don't just need a Jesus who gives us a little nudge on Sunday mornings and gets us through the week. And that preacher's sermon, good. That was a good sermon, preacher. We need a descending Jesus who comes down into the absolute car wreck of our lives and literally breathes his life into our mortal bodies i need that descending jesus every single day i was really struggling with some things with one of my daughters who i love deeply And none of, anything that I'm saying to you right now shouldn't shock you at all because we all have problems, don't we? Unless I'm the only one. Maybe I am. Who knows? And I had to walk, you know, I I walk up to my brother, Randy, and I said, I just need to, just to let you know, you know, I wanted to, you know, and he goes, and he says this to me, he says, yell into the abyss. And I said, man, I love that. And I did. And then he gave me the hope. In my abyss, he said, but you know what? There is a power, brother, available to you in the midst of your terrible suffering even today. I need that Jesus. And I need to also know that there's other brothers and sisters that are willing to walk through the abyss in my life. I need a justifying Jesus who walks into the insane asylum that is my life only so that He can speak to me and say that the absolute insanity of your sin and the things going on in your heart are not too great for me. It is an insane asylum, isn't it, sometimes our lives? It is a car wreck, isn't it? But we have a Jesus. Let me finish by say, by reading this page to you. I loved it. It meant a lot to me. It's, by, it's in a, it's a book called What's, uh, Putting Amazing Back into Grace by Michael Horton and here's what he says. I'll finish with this. We are born into this world in union with Adam. Everything he had, we have. Everything he is, we are. He earned God's judgment for himself and for us. Had he kept from eating the forbidden fruit, he would have earned for himself and for all of humanity eternal life. There would have been no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no pain, no guilt, and no death. But as it happened... Adam disobeyed, and we were identified with him in the likeness of his sin. His guilt was imputed to us, and, and his sinful, rebellious nature shaped us in the womb even before we committed actual sin. But here, listen, but there came a second Adam who made it to the end without disobeying God. He was sent as a new representative. Instead of a tree in the middle of the garden, This second Adam was taken to a high mountain peak. Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And instead of feeding, he fasted. Instead of indulging his flesh by eating, he denied himself. Finally, the devil, the same tempter in Eden, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. But instead of easy exaltation, Jesus, who was God, nevertheless took the long road of obedience, the slow road of suffering, the rough road of sacrifice that would lead eventually to Calvary. In this obedience, and the other 30 years of consistent sinless perfection, Jesus earned for us what Adam failed to earn. Jesus is our righteousness. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sending your Son as our righteousness. It's easy for us, Lord, to, as we think about grace, it's easy for us to really really have uh, some crazy views of sin. And I pray that we would be, as a people, we would really look upon it very seriously in our lives. I don't think we talk about it a lot. I know we don't talk about it a lot with each other. We love it for it to be hidden and dark we love for nobody to know. We're embarrassed by it. It gives us a lot of shame. And so, Lord, even that's why it's so beautiful that we can even come to your table today. And I just, I pray, Lord, that we would do business with you. I know that I need to spend time with you today at your table. I thank you so much for your gospel and what it means. I thank you so much, Father, for sending us your son. We pray that that message would ring out in Midtown and in this city. In your name, amen.